belongs to him. James chapter number four, James chapter number four. We've not been in this passage for a, well, I guess it's been a few weeks now. And I do want to do a little bit of review as we are looking at, once again, James chapter four and this particular phrase or sentence in verse number 10 of drawing nigh to God, excuse me, verse number eight of drawing nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. A few weeks ago, when we looked at this passage, we saw that James uses several terms of war. This is a passage that James does not hold back. He, he deals with the fact that we have conflict, we have war. Yes, physical, literal, sometimes war, physical conflict, but he's dealing with the fractured relationships, he's dealing with the bitterness, the animosity, and the anger, and all of the various relationship conflicts, and he's getting right down to the source of where it all comes from. And he uses literal terms for physical warfare, but obviously there is a spiritual application. He's using these terms, of course, by the inspiration of God. We are clearly in a spiritual battle, aren't we? Ephesians 6, 12 makes it very clear that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but might through God to the putting down of strongholds. And verse 5 goes on to say, Casting down imaginations... And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So in this spiritual warfare, there are clearly thoughts, ideas, ideologies, philosophies that we have to be on guard against. And those thoughts, and those bad ideas, and those wrong philosophies often well up from our own sinful depraved hearts. And that's what James really gets down to here in chapter 4 when he's dealing with the roots of these conflicts. In verse 1, for sake of review, he says, from whence, from where? From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? He's saying it comes right out of the members of our own being, that we are a sinful people, that we have committed lawlessness and transgression against the laws of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So spiritual conflict is at the root. Our members having a depraved heart that is Desperately wicked, as we read elsewhere in Scripture, that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. These lusts that war in our members that come out, he says in verse 2, they, that we lust and have not, we kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. We fight in war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. This spiritual conflict, it does sometimes result in literal Physical warfare. I, I can't help but think of what's going on in Israel. 
there are spiritual forces of wickedness behind this conflict. Terrorist organizations that have given themselves over to radical Islamist ideology that sees the Jews as a people group that needs to be eradicated in order for Allah to accomplish his purposes. There is a spiritual dimension here. There is a spiritual root to physical conflict, even physical warfare. And we know that what's going on in the Middle East even goes all the way back to Ishmael in the contention with the Jews prophesied in Genesis 16. And Earl preached a great message on this back in October. It's in our archives on Sermon Audio. And he dealt with that and, uh, in such a good way. But obviously not every, not every conflict in relationships results in physical warfare. But are not relationships in conflict, it seems like, all the time, everywhere we go, especially in the family? There are lots of relationship breakdowns, lots of relationship conflicts. You go to your workplace, you, you, uh, maybe you've even spent some time with family over the holidays, and uh, you have had to even maybe navigate through some of this. There's, there's all kinds of conflicts in relationships. We just can't get away from it. It just seems as our society rejects God and pushes scripture away and ignores and rejects the principles of God's word and does whatever he wants and lives his own truth and expressive individualism and personal autonomy, it just causes more and more fractures. And James is going to deal with the root of all this. It's out of our own members. It's out of our own lusts. And he uses once again in this cause for the conflict. In this cause of the conflict, he uses terms like war in verse 1, which speaks of literal physical war in general conflicts among groups of people that sometimes even is not just among groups of people within nations, but even sadly sometimes even gets into the church and groups of people in confederate with each other begin to cause church splits and divisions even within the church. He deals, he deals with uh, this conflict, this cause of conflict, with the term fightings, wars, fightings. Fightings has to do with hand-to-hand combat. It has, to deal with, it has to do with those smaller groups or those individual, and can I say family, conflicts that even those who love us the most can hurt us the most. And sometimes can be the hardest relationships to fix. He deals with that in the term fightings, hand-to-hand combat. He uses the term lust in verse 1, lust. And then he repeats another term for lust in verse 2. The first one, literally in verse 1, has to do with hedonistic carnal desires. This is out-of-control lusts and passions. He, he says in verse 2, this word lust, this is zealous, earnest desires that we have set our heart upon that we think that we have to have. We know how that is sometimes. We've been a child or we have children or grandchildren and they beg and plead and they think they have to have. And they ask in multitudes of different ways because they think if they can just get this one thing, then they will be happy forever, right? Right? 
about two weeks later, there's another phone that comes out. Well, at least once a year. Anyway, there's all these desires, strong, intense passions that we have to have something. And he says in verse 2, these lusts, these passions that we think that we have to have something and we get out of God's will and God's order and God's design and God's time and he says it will even go so far as to kill in verse 2. He literally uses the word for murder here. Now I realize not every desire and passion goes to that extreme, but what does Jesus say in Matthew 5 about the desire to kill someone? It begins with a heart desire of hate. And he deals with the heart attitude that leads to a physical, literal act of violence, murder, killing. He says it comes out of a heart of hatred, of bitterness, of anger. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war. He uses fight and war again. He continues in verse 3, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Asking amiss is with evil intent, with wrong motive. He comes back to that word lust in verse 3 that has to do with our hedonistic, selfish desires. James is dealing with the root problem. And we stare at the root problem in the mirror. At least I do, every morning. I have found the enemy, and it is me. I am my number one worst enemy. And James is dealing with the root cause. We can deal with all of the symptoms of these sins in society with multiple types of programs and politics and policies and rules and laws, but the root of the matter is our sinful, lustful hearts they get outside of God and his order and his will and his time and design. And we desire to have what God says no or not now or in rebellion to his given principles and commands and laws. And we get outside of God's order and design and out of our own lusts, hedonistic desires. Selfish, passionate desires. We resort to wars and fightings, even to killings, murder, violent activities. It comes from a heart of sin. He continues in verse 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses. James, again, he's not building a mega church here. <laughs> he's not building a feel-good church here. He comes right out and he calls us adulterers and adulteresses. He's talking to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered abroad. Among them are true believers, but there are some that are unsaved that are attaching themselves to these groups of Jewish believers. The 12 tribes scattered abroad. Obviously, through the inspiration of God's word, the preservation of God's word, these principles, these truths apply for us right now in the 21st century. The immediate context, these, these Jews who have been scattered abroad, many of whom are saved people, some who have just suffered uh, racial discrimination, some who have been persecuted and had to have left their homeland because of their beliefs, but many just because they were Jews. 
So there's a group of unsaved and a group of saved that James is addressing. And we're going to make applications for both. But he says, ye adulterers and adulteresses. For the unsaved, that's a spiritual adultery, a spiritual affair, immoral affair, spiritually speaking, where an unsaved person is worshiping some other god. It could be themselves. It could be their money. It could be whatever it is that is keeping them from repentance and placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For the believer, there's the temptation of worldliness. He says, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? In the book of Romans, Paul will address this issue, and he says, What fruit have ye then in those things that ye are now ashamed of? He says, you've been saved out of that world, out of that lifestyle. He said, what fruit had ye then in it? So why do you want to continue to be tempted by it and continue to dabble in it and to, and to listen to its lies and to practice its folly? He's saying, that's friendship with the world. James uses the, the illustration here in verse 4, the analogy here. Friendship of the world, it's enmity with God when we... In our, in our unsaved state, we're outside of the grace of God. We were enemies of God. We were walking in darkness. He's saying that's not the place that the believer should be. That's not where the believer's values, motives, priorities should be. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So while he's identifying the unsaved, he's also warning believers whose affections are being tested and drawn away by worldly temptations, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. If we're not careful, the world will set our priorities, will determine our values, and will dictate our motives. As I said a few weeks ago, we can even be doctrinally sound and ecclesiastically separated, yet our love for God can grow cold. And we can lose our passion for Christ because our passion has been tempered by worldliness, selfish motives, covetous and carnal desires. Sin can temper our passion, our desire for the Lord, for a close walk and fellowship with Him. We talked in Sunday school and we dealt with this in our Bible study as we've been going through the book, The Daniel Dilemma. I mentioned this in Sunday school. I thought it would be good to bring it up again here this morning in our morning service, the way in which Satan uses the world to draw Christians away, to get them enamored with the world. He uses tactics of isolation, indoctrination, identification, and intimidation. Rand Humble brings these up in the book, The Daniel Dilemma, as we looked at them, uh, I think it was earlier this month, as a matter of fact, as we went through the study and we were challenged from the Word of God, and Rand Hummel uses these four words to talk about how the world can lure us away in subtle, deceptive, sometimes direct ways. But isolation, getting us away from godly influences, drawing us away from church, from Bible study, drawing us away from godly people who counsel us with wisdom from the word of God, isolation, 
indoctrination, developing worldly, sinful thought patterns, beginning to think like the world. Identification, moving to the level of excusing and justifying sinful ideas and actions to the point that sin begins to look normal. It is justifiable and our priorities and our values begin to change. They are more developed by worldly philosophies, trends, ideologies, and false teachings than by the truth of God's word. That's when we begin to identify ourselves more with the world and its activities and its ideas and its thoughts and its values than we do with Christ and the truth of the word of God and godliness and righteousness and purity and holiness. Isolation, indoctrination, identification, and then intimidation where there is an aspect of control now, where there's fear, fear of not being accepted by the world, of persecution, of rejection. We've seen believers many times compromise because they have been so desiring and wanting the world's approval instead of God's approval. Instead of being faithful and true to the word of God, have begun to compromise and begun to develop a friendship with the world because they're more desiring more the approval of the world of ungodly people and ungodly organizations and ungodly systems i was listening to an interview the other day with a former christian contemporary music performer she had come out of that and I know this is a controversial issue, and I'll go ahead and I'll bring it up because I thought it was so apropos to what she was saying. She came out of that particular industry. I forget how many years removed, and she was interviewing an individual, and they were talking about the compromise that she, in particular, as a musician in the CCM industry, she talked about the compromise that she made from the early days of her entering into that industry. And she was talking about the, the, the damage that's been done, the place that CCM is, is at right now. And she said, when she first began, it was all about ministry and evangelism and all that. But then she said, we sold our label to an unsaved recording publishing company. And she said, they began to set rules on us. She said, we wanted the money, we wanted the prestige, we wanted our label to get spread, we wanted our name to be out there, but she said they were beginning to add more and more rules as to what we could say, what we could sing, what we could do, and if we showed our Christianity too much, they would kick us off the label. They would threaten us with money, with pulling our name from the charts. And she said, what we did... In our late teens, early 20s, she said we compromised. This is a former CCM artist saying we compromised. She said we gave in. We let the unsaved publishing company dictate our values, our motives, our priorities, and we sold ourselves out. And she said, no wonder 30 years later, there is a whole group of those people who now are deconstructionists. She said they never had faith to begin with, and then they compromised what little bit of faith they had, and no wonder we're in the state that we're in. This is from her own mouth. It's just an example of the compromise, that we do it in so many other ways. 
We begin to become enamored with the world. And it begins to set our priorities, begins to set our standards. We begin to buy into its stinking thinking. And we may not be a mocker, a scorner, a scoffer, but we find ourselves maybe not even in the fool category, but we are simpletons, as Proverbs talks about, the simple who are easily pulled into the worldliness, the ungodliness, and the compromise. He says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think, verse 5, that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now verse 5 is not a direct quote from the Old Testament. It's a summary statement of Old Testament teaching regarding the sin nature and the spirit of man. The spirit of man desires to have his own way. He craves, he strongly desires with envy and with jealousy. We want what we want and we're going to get what we want no matter what it takes to get it, right? <laughs> that's how we are. And we have a society now that's just flooded with that kind of garbage idea that we can just get whatever we want however we want it, and you can be your true, authentic self. Express yourself, personal autonomy. You decide what is truth for yourself. Now what happens when your truth conflicts with somebody else's truth? How does, we, we, we found, we, we've seen that, right? There's, there's tolerance for it seems everybody and everything except for truth. There's tolerance for everybody and every group, it seems, except for Christians, except for Bible believers, except for the Son of God. But he's using this in verse 5, this desire, our internal desires. We crave, we strongly desire to have what we want, to get what we want. Then he begins to deal with the cure for this conflict. He begins to deal with this cure. He says in verse 6, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. He goes on in verse 7, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. He's going to give 10 imperatives. 10. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. And then finally, number 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he shall lift you up. What's the cure for this conflict? It's humility. Oh, that's a word that is tough. That's a word that is not a popular word in our society today. Especially, again, in this expressive individualism, personal autonomy type of culture that we live in, your truth, my truth, we all have our own truth. Humility is not a characteristic that our culture highlights, holds up. I, I mentioned, I watched a documentary, and I'm not saying that he is a great hero or someone that we should necessarily look up to for personal character. But I, I was just thinking of the documentary I watched the other day of Barry Sanders, old running back from 
for the Detroit Lions, who actually are, are a decent team, uh, surprisingly. But Barry Sanders, he was running for 200 yards a game sometimes. I think he set a, or was close to a record. He ran for over 2,000 yards in a, in a season. He was an incredible running back. Um, some of the younger people don't know who I'm talking about. There's plenty of videos on YouTube. Incredible running back. He would score a touchdown, and he'd go over and he'd hand the football to the referee. No touchdown dances, no gyrating in front of the camera, no taking the cameraman's cell phone and creating a TikTok or YouTube video. Handed the football to the referee. And they were even in the documentary, in the interview, they were saying, who does that anymore? <laughs> what? Everybody, even in the 90s, was like, what? Hand the ball to the referee? This is your time to shine, right? Now you sack a quarterback and you're down 30 points. You still go out and you do a dance, right? You have a losing record. You still run down to the other end of the field and do some ridiculous photo op, you know? And it goes on and on. Humility is not something that we highlight in our society, that we exemplify. I mean, it's, it's words like doormat. You got to get your own. You got to get them back. Don't you know you got to get your name out there? You got to be seen. You got to be heard. You got to be recognized. You got to have the fame. You got to have the fortune. You got to have the popularity. You got to have the likes. You got to have the followers. You got to have the subscribers. And everybody has a platform now. I'm not saying it's all wrong, but we have I everything. If we're not careful, we will buy into a worldly ideology that is all about me. And we have to fight it. I am my number one enemy. I think of myself more than anybody else every day. That makes me proud. It's rebuking. I'm sitting here this morning finishing up and doing some more prep this morning. And God is working me over. How do I get up behind the pulpit and preach this message on humility if I have an ounce of it in my own life? It is humbling, it's rebuking, and we need a good piece of humble pie once in a while. I did something really stupid the other day, and I caught myself, found myself, I should say, saying, Lord, thank you. I needed that piece of humble pie. That was really dumb, but thank you, Lord, I needed that. I think we, eat, we should eat a lot more humble pie than we like to admit. He says, in this cure for this conflict, he giveth more grace. Yes, there is grace for suffering and sorrow for trials and tribulations. Praise God for that abounding grace. But where does he use the word grace in the context here? In the issue of pride. God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. Oh God, may you give us more grace to be humble. Because we think of ourselves way too much. The grace that is abounding is to the humble. We're thankful for grace that is greater than all of our sin. In the first area of pride that has to be overcome by the grace of God is the pride that keeps us from repenting of our sin and placing our faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. That is the ultimate root for why people reject Jesus Christ. We can say money, we can say popularity, we can say family, we can say works, religion, yes. All of those would be in opposition, possibly, to prevent us from coming to saving faith in Christ, but it's ultimately our pride. We don't want to admit that we are 
hellbound sinners who cannot save ourselves, who must throw ourselves upon the mercy of a holy God and come mourning over our sin, impoverished and calling out in dependence, have mercy upon me, a sinner. We don't have that taught in our culture. Most of our society is get what you can get. And God is saying humility is the first step to ever receiving grace. The grace that is necessary for salvation comes as we confess our sin, recognizing ourselves as a hell-bound sinner who cannot save himself or herself. And he goes on, and he says in verse number 9, I'm sorry, in verse number 8, he says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. So he deals with, he deals with humility in verse 6. He talks about submission in verse 7. Before you could ever resist the devil, there has to be this humility and this submission. He talks about resisting the devil. Then look what he says in verse 8. In drawing nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. And then look in those imperatives. He talks about cleansing our hands. That's the outward. That's the external. And he calls us sinners. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Who are the double-minded? We know from earlier, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, but the double-minded is that area of ambiguity. Of Well, I'm not really sure I can take what God says and really call it absolute truth. You know, there, there's, there's another way we can mix with grace and we can turn out all right. He says, no. He says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify where? Your hearts. Get rid of that ambiguity in your heart. Get rid, get rid of that self-dependence on your heart that's in your hearts. Get rid of that where, well, I, I can kind of sort of trust God for my salvation, but really I want to hang on to the world. I want to be able to keep whatever the world's got to offer. I want to hold on, and yet I can still have Christ. I can just add him on like an exercise program, a diet plan, a, a, a therapist to make my life better, to give me more success, to help me to have more accomplishment, to expand myself and to have a healthier you in all the different code languages and phrases that are used today. No, he says, no more of this double-mindedness, single-minded, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me when Jesus said that, everybody knew what that meant. They knew what the cross was. They knew what it represented. And that's the call of salvation. He calls it out right here. He says, cleanse your hands. Yes, there's an external, but it begins with the heart that's purified. And he goes on, and he says in verse 9, be afflicted. That's lament. That's a strong word. Afflict yourself in lamentation over what? Your sinfulness. Your pride. He says mourn, verse number 9. And weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. This is, this is strong language. Dealing with our sin takes a mourning, a brokenness, a humility that's described in lamenting 
as mourning, as weeping, as even our laughter being turned to mourning, our joy being turned to heaviness. Where are we at in our, in our, in our culture today? Is he's, is he's calling these unsaved to salvation, and as he's rebuking believers, and us included here, where, where is our, our world at when it comes to these kinds of term, this, this kind of terminology that describes us? <laughs> Nobody likes this kind of terminology. We, we don't like to be described this way and that this is what we have to do to come to the Lord. Submission, resisting the devil, drawing nigh to God, cleansing our hands, purifying our hearts, being afflicted, mourning, weeping. Letting, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. I thought life was about a big party. I thought it was just about my own personal pleasure. I thought it was about me just getting what I want and being happy all the time. Isn't that what we're sold? Isn't that what we're told in our culture today? These are terms that really deal with our heart issues. That really affect us and where we're at in our relationship with God. Because we live in a culture today, we live in a culture today that is very, can I just say, sensual. We base almost every decision on how we feel. Now, now, we, have, now we have such a sensitivity to everything that if it hurts my feelings then therefore you are wrong and could even be possibly committing some sort of violent language or even some people will say committing genocide because the truth is spoken and it hurt my feelings. These terms here in these verses are not terms of comfort, casualness, and convenience, are they? Coming to Christ in saving Faith requires a high level of discomfort. Before there can ever be grace, before there can ever be saving faith, one must come to grips with his or her sinfulness. We come broken. We come in need of being rescued. He deals with it. And and, and it's, yes, a... Application to unbelievers who need to come broken before the Lord for God's healing from their sin. But also, what about us as believers? You know, getting right with God, staying right with God requires confession. It requires spiritual discipline. It requires denial of oneself. Just the fact that we get up on a Sunday morning and come to church by 9.30 in the morning to hear a bald guy talk about the Bible? That's unusual. That's countercultural. That's upstream. But it's necessary for us to grow in Christ's likeness, to be with God's people, to have the accountability, to have the instruction. It's not about me. This isn't a popularity contest. This isn't about seats in the pews. This is about the necessity of obeying what God has called us to do. And we have not been called to comfort and to casualness and convenience. We will inconvenience ourselves for ball games, for amusement parks, 
for all kinds of the things that we want to do. But get out of bed to go to church, to read my Bible, serve, you mean wash dishes, flip a pancake, scramble some eggs, bring some green beans in a crock pot, spend a Saturday and take down tables and chairs and minister to someone who's hurting. Yeah, that's what God's called us to do. That's part of the spiritual disciplines. And it's the least that we can do. It's the reasonable expected service. These words are not words of comfort. They go against the grain of our culture. But it's what our Savior did for us. In Philippians 2. Who humbled himself. In the incarnation he came. As a babe. Put on human flesh. And he was a servant. And he was a servant to the point that he went to the cross and died. A bloody, cruel, violent, murderous death. Like a common criminal for you and for me. And we complain because God hasn't done enough for us. I deserve better. On and on it goes. And James says, wait a minute here. Maybe the problem with all these conflicts and all these relationship breakdowns and all of this hate and anger and all of this that is just a mess, maybe it comes down to the fact that we are too full of ourselves. And we need to come back to James 4 and do some evaluation. Am I submitting myself to the Lord? Lining myself up under God and the truths of his word like a soldier does under military command for spiritual, or excuse me, for physical combat. Do we line ourselves up under the truths of God's word for spiritual combat and a willing, conscious submission to God and his authority? Then we can resist the devil with God's armor, the armor of God, with humility, depending upon the Lord, drawing nigh to him, and what's the promise? That he will draw nigh to us. That relationship will be fixed. God's not the problem. The problem is us. That drawing nigh to the Lord is the idea of the distancing being fixed, the reconciliation being accomplished. As we bow in humility, as we submit, as we draw nigh to him, as we cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, as we're afflicted and we mourn and we weep, and we turn our laughter to mourning and our joy to heaviness over our sin, over not being right with God, out of being out of fellowship with the Lord, as we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, then he promises to do what? He will lift us up. It's his timing and his order and his design. He lifts us up in his way, according to his purpose. It may not be about all of the likes and the follows and the subscribers that we think we deserve. It may mean having to give up some of that. But it would be far greater to have acceptance from God than to have the acceptance of the world and compromise and ruin our salt and our lights and not have the treasures laid up in heaven and ultimately to displease the Lord. And steal and rob from his glory. Shame on us. No, submit. Humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he, he shall lift you up. 
excuse me, Matthew 23 and verse 12, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Proverbs says, let another man praise you and not your own mouth. Others and not your own lips. Maybe we need to do some self-examination this morning. Maybe we haven't been drawing nigh to God because our hands aren't clean, our hearts aren't pure, we've not mourned over our sin, we've not humbled ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We've not humbled ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Let God do the lifting up. Nebuchadnezzar learned this. As we close today, we don't have time to turn to Daniel chapter 4, but Nebuchadnezzar learned this. He sent out as a beast of the field, the emperor of the most powerful empire in all the world. And in his pride, he's sent like a beast for seven years. And as he came back, I, I have my reasons to believe that Nebuchadnezzar might be in heaven by the way he responded to that humility. I wonder if we're not going to see him one day. And he says, in number, excuse me, I keep wanting to say numbers or Nebuchadnezzar, it's Daniel chapter number four, that those who lift themselves up in pride, God is able to abase. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. May we be humble before the Lord and see him do a work that only he can do in us and through us for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for James chapter 4. Lord, it rebukes us. It, it, it gets right down to our very being, our very motives, our values, and our priorities. And Lord, it, it hurts. But Lord, how much we have to check ourselves. We don't even think sometimes beyond the nose on our face. When Lord, you've called us to ministry, to service, to love others. Our neighbors, as we already love ourselves, and to even love our enemies, and to do good to them. And Lord, help us in humility to submit ourselves to you and be drawn to you. And walk in faith and in a right relationship with you. And Lord, fulfilling what you so desire to have, a close, bright, personal fellowship with us. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, Lord, may today they cleanse their hands, purify their hearts, and come in submission and saving faith today, turning from their sin and turning to you for salvation. Lord, as believers, help us to be humble. Help us, Lord, to live lives that are right with you. Lord, do your work in our hearts even now as we sing this closing hymn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.